Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 48, verses 8 through 20, which is found on page 8 of your bulletin. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim and in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to, re- to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. This is God's word. We're rounding now towards the end of the series on the life of Joseph. And <clears throat> we've been saying that the narrative of Joseph is uh, powerful because it proves to us that God is active in our suffering. And this passage, this is the last scene in the life of Joseph's father, Jacob. We just finished a series on Jacob. And as we near the end of Joseph, Joseph and his narrative, we're really nearing the closure to Jacob's narrative as well. And it's, it's actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's not the sexiest passage. Um, it's probably one of the most boring parts of the entire series. But why are we looking at this passage? Here's what's happening. Jacob is finally reunited with his favorite son. After 22 years, Joseph had been abandoned by his brothers for 22 years. And by now, Joseph has risen to wealth and power in Egypt. Um, He's got two sons, and he's risen to the level of prime minister, really, uh, the executive hand uh, to the pharaoh. And his father, Jacob, is now nearing the end of his life. And here, Joseph brings his two sons to Jacob for the deathbed blessing, because in that day, in the culture, in the family of their day, the deathbed blessing was significant to these people. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because this triggers Jacob's entire narrative. Everything's coming around full circle for for Jacob. The approval of his father, the approval of, of the house, everything's coming around full circle. The blessing. It's a very interesting passage. Because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the author of Hebrews says, uh, you know, that's the famous chapter where um, he surveys, the author surveys the great figures of the Old Testament. And of all the incidents in Jacob's life, all the incidents, 
this moment is the only one mentioned in that passage. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. I'm going to read. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. It's interesting. Because this passage is the least memorable. It's the, it's the least sexy of all the passages. Of all the dramatic moments in Jacob's life, you know, this moment as seen as the triumphant moment, the climactic, the triumphant expression of Jacob's faith. It's not the moment when he wrestles with God. It's not the, the moment when uh, he marries Leah and Rachel and that drama that takes place. It's not the, the moment when he has that vision of the stairway to heaven. It's this passage. Why is that the case? <clears throat> In the last active scene of Jacob's life, we're going to see, we're going to draw together the overpowering theme throughout his narrative. The overpowering grace of God. God's grace works sometimes against our wills, in our suffering, against our scheming. He thwarts our scheming sometimes. Uh, Even when we're resisting God, even when we're not acknowledging God, God's grace is overpowering in our lives. And there are three points we're going to learn about God's grace. First, the need for God's grace. Second, uh, the need to experience God's grace. And lastly, we need God's grace in a way that it, pro- that it helps us to process the world through the lens of, of grace. We need God's grace, we need to experience God's grace, and we need to process the world through the lens of God's grace. Okay, first, um, the need for God's grace. Verse 15. I'm going to read verse 15 for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Jacob says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. It's an amazing admission. You know, he's not speaking in prose in this text. He's singing. He's singing a song. This is is Hebrew poetry that he's speaking in. You know, the first time, this is the first time that, that God is referred to in the Bible as a shepherd. This is the first time, all the way in the beginning in Genesis. And if God, if Jacob is saying, you know, God is my shepherd, what is he saying? What is he admitting about himself? He's saying that he's a sheep. He doesn't say, you know, the God who has been my rancher all my life, and I am the horse. He doesn't say, the God who has been my herder all my life, because I am cattle. That's not what he says. He says, God is my shepherd. I am sheep. You see, if a horse ever gets away from you, if a horse ever gets away from his rancher, it can live in the wild. It will run wild. It will live in the wild. It will survive. If a cow gets away from a herder, it can roam wild. It can survive. But if a sheep gets away from a shepherd, it will die. You never hear about wild sheep. There's no such thing as wild sheep. Sheep are the most helpless, most foolish of creatures. And, and they're not as docile as you'd think. And they're so stupid, they're they're so resistant, even when they're helpless, even when they're in danger, even when they're defenseless, even when they're sick, they're constantly resistant, and they need constant care, constant watch. Here's Jacob. He's showing us a picture of our weakness, our foolishness. And, you know, other, other religions, what do they teach? Perform, obey the laws, seek God, look for God, find God. Jacob says, you can't. You can't do that on your own. You need help. You need help. You can't just listen and obey the rules. Even if you obeyed well, Jacob says, even if you obeyed well, there'd be no song. It would be oppressive for you. There would be no song. You wouldn't sing about this, but here's Jacob. At the end of his age, he's singing. After all that he's endured, after all that he's suffered, he's singing. 
He calls God shepherd. He says, you know, you need God to draw you in. Even when you're resistant, even when you're wandering, that's why you need God. In the book of God, in the book of John, the gospel according to John, the author, you know, Jesus says, no one comes to me except the Father who sent me draws him. And the image there is not, uh, you know, like, I think I shared this before in the past. It's not like you're, you're lowering a bucket down a well and you're drawing up water. That's not what he's talking about. It's, it's, it's the image, and at least in, the, in, the, in this language here, it's the image of uh, a prisoner who's trying to get away from his jailer and you lasso him with your rope and you're drawing him back in. He says, no one comes to me because you're so resistant. We're always wandering. We're so foolish. We're so proud. We're so on our own. You need God's grace to draw you in, to pull you back in. It's an amazing admission. You need God's grace in every way. Jacob realized that. That's the first point. Very quick point. The second point, lots of people admit the need for grace, you know, but very few people admit that they have an experience of grace in a subjective way in their hearts. Lots of people admit grace, but very few people, even fewer people admit that they, they've had an experience of grace that's subjective in their heart. Um, in other words, one, one of the things, it's one thing to understand that you need grace, you know, but you can't just do that through doctrine. You can't just do that through study. You can't do that. In verse 16, Jacob says, the angel redeemed me. He redeemed me from all harm. May he bless May he bless these boys. The angel of the Lord, the blessing. Jacob is taking, he's looking back, you know, at the climactic moment of his life when he wrestled with God. He's bringing back these references, the angel, you know, he says, and he redeemed me. Um, He's alluding to what happened to him at Peniel in Genesis chapter 32 that night. What happened to Peniel? Here's Jacob, he's preparing to meet with Esau. It's the climactic moment of his life. All his life pretty much cascaded up until the point where he's going to meet his brother. And there that night, as he's preparing, he's alone in solitude, Jacob wrestles with God. He's wrestling with God. He wrestled, God meets Jacob there, and he wrestles Jacob all night. And he could have destroyed him, but instead, instead of destroying him, he blesses him. In this time of personal crisis, God meets Jacob there, and there he blesses him. Jacob experienced God's grace at Peniel. When you experience God's grace, on one hand, it's wrestling. There's suffering. There's turmoil. There's turbulence in your life. Jacob is wrestling with God. His leg is literally pulled out of joint. There's pain and there's suffering. But there he saw his lostness. There he saw his foolishness. And there he realized he's been fighting. He thought he was fighting his father. He thought he was fighting Esau all of his life. But instead he realized at that moment, all his life, he's been fighting God. He's been wrestling God. He's been running from God. And he realized he saw a deeper view of himself, an existential view of his own suffering, his own wandering, his own running away, his own stupidity. That's what he saw. That's on one hand. But on the other hand, he also learned that God is not just some remote lawgiver. He's his shepherd. That's where he learned that. God is his shepherd. On one hand, God hurt him. You know, he took his leg you know, out of joint, but only to wake him up only to heal him deeply, only to bring him into real rest, to renew him. You see that? It's an amazing thing. It's one thing to say, I need God in my life. So you study more and you pray more, but it's another thing to really experience God's grace in your life, to get a deeper sense of your own brokenness, that need that's driven by your own brokenness, your own shame, and, and, the, re- and the relief that comes because you realize you know God is committed to you. He is unfailing in his love for you. That's an amazing thing that you, to discover that. 
That's the second point. We need God's grace. We need to experience God's grace. It's one thing to know that you need it. It's another thing to experience God's grace. Two points, all in one verse. Jacob says you need God's grace, you need to experience God's grace. The rest of this passage, the entire narrative, verses 10 to 20, we're going to go through this. That's, here's the most important point. This passage shows Jacob. At the end of his life, he's way beyond Joseph spiritually. He's on a different level spiritually. Joseph, at one point in the narrative, you know, he says, no, Father, don't do this. Jacob says, I know. I know, I know what I'm doing. All of life looks different if you begin to use grace as the lens by which you view the world. When you take grace, God's grace, and you use God's grace to view the world, everything looks different, he says. It's an ironic statement, verse 10. It's an ironic statement. Jacob's eyes are now growing frail. They're getting weaker. They're growing dim. Everything is coming around full circle. It takes us all the way back to when Jacob was the son and he was approaching his father, whose eyes had grown dim. Everything's going around full circle for Jacob. Joseph brings his two sons, right? Again, there's two sons. You have Manasseh, the older son, and Ephraim, the younger son. And he takes Manasseh to the right hand of Jacob because the right hand is the hand of executive authority. That's the hand that you use to bless. Take the right hand. You bring Manasseh to the right hand of Jacob. And obviously then the younger son, Ephraim, goes to the left hand of Jacob. And, and he says, it's time to bless my sons. And, and it's the law of primogeniture that's in effect here. The elder son gets the lion's share of the wealth, the wealth of the family, the entire empire, the estate was centralized on the older son, on the elder son. The blessing was to go to the elder son. That, they didn't have banks back then. That's how you centralized wealth. That's how you grew your wealth. And, then you, and it was the elder son who then distributed the wealth to the rest of his family. But here, Jacob, Manasseh on his right, Ephraim on his left switches his hands and he blesses to, to bless Ephraim, the younger son. And Joseph says, no, what are you doing? Are your eyes that bad? And that's pretty much what's going on here. It's an amazing thing. Jacob switches hands and he says, I know. I know exactly what I'm doing. For the first time in my life, I see clearly. He says, you and I, we see the world very differently right now. When you, real, when you realize <clears throat> that um, you, you need more than just a need for the gospel, but you need to experience the gospel, you develop a new lens by which you view the world, a new lens. You see the world differently. The gospel shapes two things, your external view of the world and your internal view of yourself. The external view of the world, your, your social world, the physical world, but then it also shapes and changes the internal world, your agenda, your private, your deep personal agenda in life. He refuses to switch hands. He says, no, I know what I'm doing. The gospel's changing his external view. How does it do that? Joseph is a man of his time. Joseph has risen to power. Joseph has risen to the second in command in the Egyptian empire, the most powerful empire to date at that time. And, and here he is. The world says, you know, life, society, it will only progress through men at this time, men, not through women. It's going to progress through the strong and not the weak. It's going to progress through the elder, not the younger. It's going to progress through the wealthy, not the poor. It's going to progress through the well-educated, not the, not the unintelligent, not the lesser educated. It's going to progress through the higher class, not the lower class. This is how things get done. These are the people that God uses. Today, it's not, it's not as important to be born first. It's not as important to be a male. But the world still values particular qualities. 
The world still is stuck on particular qualities. It says this is how it's done. This is how the world works. This is what the, what, uh, what the people use, what the people need. We still value intelligence. We still value your pedigree, your, your class, your social and economic class. Um, it still values profession, your professional nature, you know, what profession you're in, the shape of your face, the shape of your body, all these things the world values. Not much has changed. Not much has changed since the days of Egypt. Jacob sees the grace of God moving to Ephraim, the younger, the younger. His eyes have changed. And he's seeing clearly as his hand is moving over to Ephraim, he's switching his arms, he's crossing his arms, he's following God's divine economy, how God views the world. When God moves in the world, he deliberately chooses the weak over the strong. He deliberately chooses to work through the broken and not the well put together. He deliberately chooses to work through and use the ugly and not the beautiful. The humble over the proud. He's seen this in his entire life. He's the younger son. He's seen this in his whole life. All of his personal striving. You know, he, he didn't need to cheat. He didn't need to steal. He didn't need to lie. God would have given him to, all these things to him by grace. He's realizing this at his older age now. God would have given these things to him. He just needed to trust That's his pattern throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture. He didn't need to ruin his family. He didn't need to ruin his marriage. He didn't need to ruin his own children and spoil some children and and have his children turn on themselves and turn on each other. If he didn't resist, God would have given these things to him anyway through his overpowering grace. And yet because of God's overpowering grace, in Jacob's resistance, God is still working through the younger over the elder. You know, his own father, his brother Esau, they resisted. They resisted. But God still blessed Jacob over Esau. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? God deliberately chooses people that the world says will not be fit. If you look at the Bible, he chooses Abel, the younger son, over Cain. He chooses Isaac, the younger son, over Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, the younger son, over Esau. He chooses Leah, the less attractive wife, over Rachel. If you look at the book of Judges, it's one of the earlier books of the Old Testament. All of the judges, they're written accounts of all these judges who have to rule over the country. Every one of them, they're a mess. All of them are a mess. Gideon, he assembles 10,000 troops to rescue Israel from their oppressors. And God says, that's not the way I work. God looks at the 10,000. He says, that's not the way I work. I don't choose to work over the strong like that. You need, to, you need to reduce your numbers. He reduces it to 300 people. He says, that's not the way I work. Goliath comes to fight. The champion of the Philistines comes to fight. He challenges the nation of Israel. And all of Jesse's sons are waiting for battle. But God chooses to work to the one person who's not at the battle. He chooses to work to young, youthful David. He barely entered into his adolescence, into puberty. He was deemed too young to fight. This is all pervasive, all throughout the Bible. Prostitutes over religious leaders, the moral, the sexual, outsiders, the marginalized people. The world says these people, unacceptable. God says, you know, Jesus says, these are the ones I will befriend. Pervasive and consistent all throughout Scripture. Jacob, he doesn't hate Manasseh. It's not like Jacob hates Manasseh, but he's passing over Manasseh. He's passing over Manasseh to Ephraim. That's what he's doing. 
He's turning away, he's turning away from Manasseh, but it's not malicious. You know, he says Manasseh's going to be fine. Manasseh's going to be blessed as well in his own way. Manasseh's going to grow. But God's grace works through the weaker, and Jacob understands this. God's grace flows through the weaker. God works in the failures. God works through the failures. God works with the failures. The ones that the world says are not okay, not acceptable, God says, you are acceptable. You are deemed, you are declared acceptable to me. You see, if you're trying to prove yourself constantly, we live in a world, we're constantly working, we're overworking ourselves. If you're working for acceptance, if you're working for that promotion, then you're always going to be competing with other people. You're constantly going to be comparing yourself with other people. And you know why? It's because you're trying to be the elder son. You're trying to work, you're trying to earn the blessing of God. You're trying to work, uh, earn the blessing of your boss, and ultimately it's a cosmic thing. You're trying to say, you know, I'm worthy of the blessing. Accept me, approve me, love me. That's what you're doing. That's what a promotion is, isn't it? That's what you're saying. That's why we have to buy new things all the time because we need to be acceptable. That's why we always have to set trends. We're constantly trying to be trendsetters. It's why we always end up doing things we don't even really enjoy doing. We're hanging around with people we don't really enjoy, we don't truly deeply want to enjoy hanging around with. Why? We're, we're, we're doing things we don't really want to do. Why? It's because you're saying, I want to be worthy. I want to be accepted. I want to be approved. And that's why we hate ourselves. We hate the way we look. We hate the way we act sometimes. You know, we think we're, we're not good enough. Deep inside, there's this inadequacy of the soul, this restlessness of the soul. When we lost God, in the Garden of Eden, all the adequacy, all the security, we lost all that, all the approval, all the acceptance. We lost all those things. Everything that the human heart needs. And we've been craving it. We're thirsting for it. Why does God choose the weak? His love and his compassion always for the weak. Why does God choose the weak? It's because it reflects the character of his own son. His own son, Jesus, the ultimate example of competence. The ultimate example of of confidence who chose, emptied himself, and became weak. God's economy works through the failures. It works through failure. It works through oppression. It works through suffering. Why? It's because it's the the ultimate example of God working, his grace working. It's showed, it's demonstrated in the one who's been abandoned by everybody. The beloved son that was rejected by everybody, beaten into the dust, rejected even by his own father. The father who intended to bless his own son, he lost his son. Jacob, he intended to bless his son. He loved his son, but then he lost his son. Remember that? God also loved his son. Mark chapter 1, the heavens opened up. The spirit of God descended like a dove. And God said, this is my son. He's doting on his son. This is the son whom I love. Listen to my son. And yet, he becomes the ultimate example, the ultimate demonstration of 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 a weakness. On the cross, God passes over Jesus to bless his people. God passes over them. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am the righteous one. I am the deserving one. I am the worthy one. I'm worthy of your love. I'm worthy. I'm the stronger son. I'm deserving. But God's hand of wrath has fallen on me so that his hand of blessing can fall on my brothers, on my friends. It's an amazing thing. God's grace is an amazing thing. God's executive authority, his hand of justice, his hand of judgment fell on Christ so that his hand of blessing with executive authority, with kingly authority can bless you. 
Do you see that? Do you believe that? Jacob was doing what God would ultimately do on the cross. That's what he was doing. On the cross, God switched hands, for, to say, so to speak. He placed us. You know, Ephraim was placed before Manasseh, the weaker before the older, the younger before the older. God placed us before the stronger one, Jesus, to bless us. Joseph is thinking like the world. Jacob's finally gotten over it, but Joseph is thinking like the world. His lens, you know, he's he risen to power, he's risen to wealth, he's still looking at the world. With, with worldly eyes, Joseph is on a completely different level spiritually. He's looking at the world very, very differently. He says, let the gospel affect the way you look at society. Let the gospel affect the way you look at other people. Let the gospel define for you who is important, who God uses, what is beautiful. It changes everything. It changes your view of everything and everyone. If I am a sinner saved by grace, I have not earned it. That means that qualifies anybody to be able to receive God's grace. Isn't that true? Because I did nothing to earn it. If you really believe that, it's going to shape the way you view other people. It's going to shape the way you view class. It's going to shape the way you view beauty, pedigree, what's important in life. Joseph, he's not quite there. Jacob, it took years to get there, decades to get there. He had to experience God's grace. What about you? What about you? Now, the gospel doesn't just shape us externally, our external view, our physical world, our view of other people, you know, but it shapes our personal agenda, our internal view, our private worlds. Jacob tells Joseph, you know, you have, to, you have your, all your plans laid out. You have everything planned out from the beginning. Don't you get it? From the beginning, you have it laid out. God is not just going to, to work according to your agenda. You're a wise person, Joseph. You're very wise. The Pharaoh saw you as wisest in the land. But God will work against your agenda at times. You know, verse 15, you see this, a hint of this. We're coming back to verse 15. He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. That's an amazing thing. He says, All my life long, God has been a shepherd. Remarkable admission. Why is that? Jacob. Remember Jacob. He was raised by a father who didn't love him. And that poisoned him. It ruined his family. Ruined his relationship with his brother. Uh, he worked hard 20 years for Laban. Two decades for Laban. He was exploited. He was manipulated. He was cheated. He was forced to marry a woman he did not love, Leah. The one he did love, the one he just absolutely adored, the beautiful Rachel, actually died shortly after childbirth. So he lost, he lost the one he loved. And then he lost his favorite son. It was the other love of his life. His favorite son, he lost J- Joseph. You know, he thought Joseph had died and he lived in depression throughout those years and then he suffered from a global economic downturn. You know, one that shaped the character of his own country. And, you know, he was left homeless. He was, he was foodless. He had no food at his old age. He was completely helpless. He had, he, had a, he had a father who didn't love him, an uncle who abused him and used him. He had a wife that he did not love, another wife that he lost um, a mother that he was separated from, uh, you know, a brother who wanted to kill him, and, and, yet, and yet he says, God has been my shepherd all my life long. He's processing his life. On one hand, he's processing his life, and, and it defines, redefines the way he views the world, but on the other hand, he's processing his life in a way at his old age. He's looking at his agenda. He's looking at his personal, private agenda in his life, and he says all these things, every step, every walk of life is under the care of our shepherd. It's an amazing thing. 
What about us? What about you? Jacob was a shepherd. So he understood the shepherds do what's best for their sheep. The sheep, they don't acknowledge the shepherd. They don't know their shepherd a lot of times. You know, they're resisting their shepherd constantly. And you know how you, you, know how you bring a sheep back that's wandering away? You think, you know, you, you know you, you, a dog wanders away. You say, here, boy, here, boy. And the dog comes back and runs back to their master and, 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 and you know, is, is panting and loving their master. That's not how sheep are. You know, you can call sheep by name. And the sheep often resist. They're wandering away. You know what you have to do? You have to pounce on the sheep. They're constantly struggling. They're resisting. You have to tie it up. You have to bind it back. You have images of shepherds carrying their sheep back with their legs tied around their necks and they're, and they're, and they're, they're walking back. That's sheep. Constantly resisting. You have to fight them. You have to wrestle them. That's God with Jacob. You have to wrestle them. Still resisting. He knows. He knows and he gets it. He's experienced God. He wrestled God all night. And he realized there that he was wrestling God all of his life. He realized that God, even though he was wrestling God and resisting God, sometimes not even acknowledging God, God has been there all those years for him. It's an amazing truth. And what he did was from that moment on in Genesis 32 when he was wrestling God, God changed his name. God reshaped his his view of the world. And from that point on, he took that truth and he processed life what he sees, what's important, and it took decades, all the way up until this point, and you see now, Jacob's wisdom, the wisdom of God in Jacob, unbelievable. He took that truth, he planted it in his life, it processed it over decades. He had plans, he had plans to be wealthy, he had plans to be blessed, he had plans to have beautiful, large family, a wonderful son that he just doted on, he wanted to dote on him for the rest of his life, he had a beautiful wife, that was his plan, he treasured those plans, and yet every single one of those things crumbled, every single one, God was humbling him, in his suffering, and now he knows, he doesn't say, you know, I was angry at God. This is not the way I wanted my life, Joseph. You have to do it differently. That's not what he says. He says, Joseph, I see. God has been my shepherd all my life. Do you see that? In your suffering, everyone here is suffering. Do you see that? He doesn't say, Joseph, you know, God is in control, so you don't have to do anything. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Joseph, God is not control. You have to do everything. That's not what he says. He says, Joseph, God is in control. Live aligned to that. Live in accordance with that. Let that shape what you see. Let that shape what you do. Let that shape your choices. Let that shape your your decisions. You're going to be resistant. You're going to wander at times. Let that be your view. Let that act on it. Align your heart. Align your will. And you're going to have peace. That's the way to peace. You're going to be working for peace. That's the only way you can have peace. That's the only way. That's what it means to worship. You know what worship is? Psalm 95 gives you a very, very nice thesis on what worship is. And it's a song. It's when you take your emotions and your heart and your will and your mind and you're all aligning it around God and his will for you. That's worship. We naturally do that in song. Jacob says, you know, God is in control. Live in accordance with that. Live in alignment with that. God has done his saving work through defeat, 
through my defeat, through my suffering, in my pain, sometimes in my oppression, God has worked through history like this. Why wouldn't he do that in our lives? If God worked throughout history like this, through a pattern of history, why wouldn't he do that in our own lives? You see that? Sometimes we feel really cast down and you feel seized and you feel tied up and bound. You know know what's happening? God is the shepherd and we've wandered and he's bringing us home. That's what he's doing. How do you know that God is there? You know, I don't know how Jacob, Jacob saw so little, I mean, suffering after suffering, just when he thought he'd get there, he got, he's arrived, he suffers. And then he works and he works and he works. And just when he thinks he gets something that he can call his own, Rachel, he suffers. There's Leah in the morning. (laughs) And yet, he says, God has been my shepherd all my life. I don't know what, he saw so little and yet he gets it. Verse 15, Jacob says, verse 16, Jacob says, the angel redeemed me. He uses the word redeemed. It's printed in your bulletins. He hints at that. The word redeem, it's like this. You owe this incredible debt and the debt is so immense, you have no choice. You have nothing left of yourself to give to be able to repay that debt. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you own. You sum up all of your belongings, all the work that you could do for the rest of your life. It will not amount. So what, you have, what do you have left? You have yourself. You have to sell yourself off as a slave. When all of a sudden this person comes in, he enters in and he says, I will pay whatever it takes to redeem this person's life from slavery. Jacob says, that angel that I've been wrestling with all my life, God, I've been wrestling him all my life. I get it. He redeemed me. How did Jacob know that? With so little information, how did he know that? He, he must have sensed at that moment that he was getting something he didn't deserve. I mean, his leg was wrenched, but he must have known that he's getting grace. He's receiving grace. He didn't deserve it. He must have sensed that whatever God was doing for him, because he touched his thigh, which meant the full wrath of God would fall on his descendant. One descendant, one who would come, who would get the full arm of God's wrath. He realized, he must have realized, you know, what God is doing for me must be incredibly costly. Where is this cost going to be paid? How do you see it? We have so much more than what Jacob sees and saw. John chapter 10. Well, John chapter 1. John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time. And he says, surprise, behold, the Lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. He calls Jesus the Lamb of God, the sheep. But in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. In other words, this shepherd will become the lamb so that the lambs, we, can become the restored shepherds of God's world. If you have, if you are a restored lamb, if you've been saved, if you've been redeemed by God, if Jesus has redeemed your life, then your view of the world will be like a shepherd. You will favor the weak over the strong. You will be attracted to the ugly over the beautiful because God is moving towards those people. You will seek to heal all that is broken in the world. It's going to redeem your view of the world as well. That's what it's going to do. And, and Jesus is this great, he's surpassingly sweet. Why is he surpassingly sweet? You know why? Because although he's king, he says, I lay, the king will lay down his life for his sheep. 
on the cross, you know that Jesus will be willing, as the king, he'd be willing to do everything for you, anything for you. You know why? Because on the cross, he gave up everything for you. On the cross, the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. Jesus lost his glory so that you can have glory. Jesus lost his wealth so that you could have immense, immeasurable wealth. Jesus, Jesus lost his power so that you could have immeasurable power. The Spirit of God would live in you, reside in you, and give you power and strength to live in alignment with what God desires. Jesus lost favor, the favor of the Father, the right hand of authority of the Father. The favor would rest on you, to have you. That's his love. He gave up everything for you. This is our proof. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Because that's our proof. That's our proof that God has bestowed immeasurable favor on his people. That's acceptance. That's the approval that we've been seeking all our lives. If you know, if you see Jesus only as a king, if you see him only as king, and that's true, because it is true, that truth is going to oppress you. It's going to make you bitter and sometimes resentful, and you're going to want to wander away. You're going to want to resist him. But if you look back on your years, all the suffering, all the pain, and you see God has been my shepherd all my life long. The hand of blessing is on me even in my suffering. God is active in my suffering because the hand of judgment fell on Christ. If you really believe that, if you take that truth and let it, and let it grow, let it germinate, let it prosper into your life, into your heart, it's going to change the way you view everything. You're going to realize all along he has been my shepherd. I've been the resistant one. I've been resistant. He's been my shepherd. He has been there. He's been there to redeem me. He's been there to renew me. It's going to challenge your personal agenda. You know, you're going to pray, heal me. And sometime later, God doesn't heal you. He's challenging your personal agenda. You're going to come to realize, you know, God, in your wisdom, will you come to realize that God will heal the world through a broken you? Because he healed you through a broken Jesus. Will you believe that? Will you trust that? Then you can, you can withstand anything. You can withstand suffering because God has healed you through a broken Jesus and that's going to make you unbreakable all to the end. You can say, mock me, hurt me, beat me, destroy me. You will only remake me. You will only complete me. That's power. That's measurable power. All because of the love of God. All because of the grace of God. Plunge your failures. Plunge your regrets, plunge your guilt, plunge your agenda into the grace of God, into the heart of God. That is going to give us peace. Will you trust that? Will you rely on that? don't, Don't just do that this week. Will you rely on that? Make that the mainstay, the pillar of your faith and of your life. Then you can say, remember Moulin Rouge? Then he sings. He's singing about suffering. He says, come what may. I will love you until my dying day. We say that another way. We say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Will you trust that? Let it bless you. Let's pray.